Welcome to the Rough Road Podcast. I'm your host, Lee Steele. Tonight's guests are Steve Webb and his wife, Erin Webb. Will you guys introduce yourself? I guess I'll start. I'm Erin Webb. I was born in Bountiful, Utah and moved to Arizona when I was about 10 years old. I've been here ever since. Um, I met Steve when I was probably 13 years old. And for me, I've been in love with him since I was 13 years old. I had a major childhood crush on him. He was the guitar player in my brother's band. So kind of hook, line, and sinker for me. How could I not fall in love with the guitar player in my brother's band? So we got married pretty soon after I graduated from high school. And we've been married for 12 years, almost 13 years. We have five children and are in wedded bliss. Nice. Uh, my name is Steve. Uh, married to Aaron, who just introduced herself. Uh, we've been married for say twelve years. Twelve years. Um, five kids. Uh, I served a mission to Venezuela, Caracas. Uh, live in Mesa, Arizona, and uh, having a lot of fun. You, were you born? Were you? Did you grow up here? Grew up here in Mesa. Uh-huh. Uh, graduated from Mountain View. And uh, lived most of my life here in Mesa. Nice. Cool. So um, <clears throat> I want to have you guys on tonight because you guys have had some interesting experiences, um, starting with your twins. You want to share that experience with us? I guess this is one for me to take. Um, yeah, we... Hadn't been married very long when we found out that we were pregnant. We'd only been married for about five months. Um, not part of the plan. We, I was planning on doing school and, you know, the whole young adult life. Get to go to college with my husband and whatever. But that our plans changed when we found out we were pregnant and then soon after found out we were having twins. Um, and it was a surprise. We were not expecting twins, but it wasn't a shock. There's a lot of twins in our family. His sister had twins about six months before we did, twin boys, and our twins are also boys. And um, between my mom and my dad and their immediate family, there's 11 sets of twins. Wow, that's a lot. It's a lot, yeah. So we were surprised, but it wasn't like shocked. Oh my gosh, where did this come from? It was, you know. Um, but but still kind of threw us for a loop. We did, that was not part of the plan. As life goes, that's, you know, nobody gets to live their plans, usually. Or plan your plans. Or plan your plans. No doing that. Um, and from the get-go, there, uh, there was complications. One of the twins was bigger than the other one, and absorbing nutrition that the other one needed so they monitored us pretty pretty regularly i would go into ultrasounds once a week and they would make sure that everything was okay um and then i was 25 weeks along and i woke up in the middle of the night and i was just woke up in a huge puddle of blood and we knew that something was wrong so we called my parents and they came over and we were rushed to the hospital um, we spent about two weeks in the hospital just trying to keep the babies from coming. I had gone into preterm labor and um, there were there was some pretty major complications with it and so eventually they decided that 
the stress of preterm labor, I just kept having contractions over and over again. It was just too much stress for the babies. So the babies were born at 27 weeks. Um, Jack was two pounds, nine ounces, and Sam was one pound, 14 ounces. Just tiny, tiny little guys. Um, when we first met him, Steve took his wedding ring and he um, slipped it over Jack's hand and slid it all the way up to his shoulder blade. He could slide his wedding ring all the way up his arm. That's a kind of a good visual of how itty bitty they were. They were just tiny little guys. And um, Steve does not have huge fingers. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, they're big, but they're not. They're, they're manly. They're manly. <laughs> but you don't have giant, like, like under the giant hands. Okay. What are you trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> that your son had very small arms. Very small arms. They were very, very tiny. Um, we didn't get to hold them for a month. They needed to stay in their incubators for a month before we could hold them. Um, and we had to drive a half an hour into Phoenix every day to go see them. And it was kind of just how I spent the rest of my time um, until they came home. They were in the hospital for... Jack was in the hospital for eight weeks, and then he came home first. He came home a week before Sam did. So Jack spent eight weeks in the hospital. Sam spent nine weeks in the hospital. And other than just being very, very small, they were actually pretty healthy. They, they call those babies greeter, uh, feeders and growers. They just need to get bigger before they can come home. So they didn't have any other complications. Like they, they had basically developed well i mean for the, for, most the part. for the first two weeks they were on cpaps they were you know right. the, the whole works but it was pretty soon after that they were removed from the cpap and they were breathing on their own they didn't eat on their own for a really long time like almost the whole time that they were in the hospital they didn't eat on their own but other than that they were pretty pretty healthy considering i mean considering right. all the other babies that are in there that you know some of them can't some of them don't make it so they didn't they, have any like heart issues or no. like based, lung based issues on, or on how like early they were and how small they were they were relatively very healthy compared yeah. to how they they could have been and a lot of that was because we caught it a couple weeks before they were born so when i was in the hospital for two weeks they would regularly give me steroid shots that was specifically to help develop their lungs faster and to get right. their systems working a little bit better for them to be on the outside right so um so they were they were fairly healthy when they when they came they just needed to get bigger but it was a scary scary time for us we were very young i was 19 when they were born wow and so and steve was only 21 21 so we were we were young we didn't have a lot of worldly experience the world kind of just you know, it reminds me of a parent teaching a kid how to swim. So we just got thrown into the deep Jumped end, right. figure it out. So there was a lot of scary times. Um, but I think through most of it, we felt confident that things were going to be okay. That we just, you know, we'll lean on each other. We'll go together to see these sweet little boys. And, you know, we feel confident that no matter what happened to them, we had each other. We had our faith and we had each other. And that was, I remember very distinctly feeling that way. I, no matter what happens, I know that there's a plan for us and I have my husband to get me through. So that helped. 
that did that yeah that that helped me stay positive and optimistic that you know even though I don't know a lot about the world and I don't know all the crazy things that the doctors are telling me and they're you know naming off a million different medicines that they're giving them and here's how we're going to take care of them am I just like a deer in the headlights so okay uh, yeah that that, sure, sounds that sounds good great. yeah whatever <laughs> right. just are they going to be alive that's right. that's all I know now how did you handle it Steve what, what was your uh I was mostly just overwhelmed I remember being and kind of surprised and not really knew what to think. I I never really had any major thoughts or feelings of what was going to happen. There was a good chance that they weren't going to survive, but I just remember thinking that no matter what did happen, uh, we'd figure figure it out together. And so I, I remember thinking, like, maybe I should pray to know if the, the kids will be all right and... Uh, I never really got that assurance, but I got the assurance that everything would be fine no matter what happened. And so we had to move forward just kind of thinking, well, whatever happens, we'll be okay. So move forward being positive. Uh-huh. Yeah. So everything worked out all right as far as that went? Yep. Mm-hmm. They, they came home. They had to be four pounds before they came home. They came home on heart monitors. We had to make sure that their hearts, they, they still had something called A's and B's where their hearts would slow down at a dangerous rate. And so we would monitor them at home and you just have to stimulate them, shake their foot, rub their belly or something if they had one of those A's and B's where their heart slows down. So they would have to be on monitor. Did that only happen when they were like sleeping or something or would it just be anytime? No, just anytime, just regularly. It ha- happened a lot more when they were sleeping. Those first probably two, two or three weeks when they came home, they, we didn't sleep hardly at all. They're, between two of them, their heart monitors were going off almost constantly, where it was just lay down. As soon as your head hits a pillow, another heart monitor would go off, and you'd get up and go make sure they're okay. And it's, it sounds really scary, like, oh, my gosh, their heart's stopping. And, but at some point, you kind of just got used to the fact that that's what happened and that they were okay, and you weren't, like, reviving them. It was really just kind of like, all right, buddy, you need to work a little bit harder. So it, would, it got right. to the point where it wasn't scary, it was just exhausting. You How just long got did that tired. go on for? They only had heart monitors for like three weeks. So it only. wasn't too long. <laughs> after they came home. Three weeks after they after came After they home. came home. And actually, this that is... sounds prob- terrible to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't fun. It was, yeah, definitely wasn't fun. But this is kind of a fun, interesting fact. Because they were so small, they didn't come home in car seats. They had little... They called them car beds. And they mm-hmm. were little flat beds that you buckled into them and they laid them flat on the ground so we would put them next to each oh, other wow. and they would travel in beds which was interesting I had never heard of that before so but yeah after about once they got to about six pounds it was but they were pretty healthy it was regular I mean we would supplement their food just to help them grow and get bigger and whatnot but other than that they weren't on any sort of special medicine and you know there are some kids who are on heart you know on oxygen for years after and right. but they were they were relatively healthy and then after that it was just learning how to have twins that's right so but so how long was it after you had the twins that you got called into the bishopric steve uh it had been like a year and a half after that because we had our daughter at the time i think she was like six months old so maybe like two years after that two years after they were born so they were still really really young, probably like 
Yeah, it must have been two years. Yeah, because we so had right when you there. got called, we had two kid or we had three kids under two. Uh huh. Yeah. So almost two years. So that had to be tough for you, Aaron. I remember when that happened. You're sitting there with three kids. Steve's up on that stand. <laughs> when I was called or when the kid, the twins when, were born? No, no. When you were called, uh-huh. you you go up on the stand and then she's there with three little babies, basically. It sounds awful, but the truth is I haven't ever had better <clears throat> sacrament meetings than at that time. We would sit with our, a family friend, the Watsons, right. and they had a bunch of adolescent young boys who would help out each take a kid right. and i gotta sit and listen to sacrament <laughs> meeting that doesn't happen now right. it was actually it actually worked out really great and they had so many people offering to help we had people calling hey can i come to church you know come with you before church and help get everybody ready and you know let me take them after what can i do to help there were so many people that helped i actually regret a little bit Where are all these friends now <laughs> right <laughs> I actually regret a little bit not letting people help me more. I was kind of maybe just a prideful little hotshot that was, I got it. I, I can do this on my own. I, you know, I, I don't need help. Thank you so much for offering, but, but I'm okay. I got it. And I, I regret that a little bit. I think I would have been able to connect with people a little bit better and allow people the opportunity to connect with our family a little bit more if I had allowed people to serve me a little bit more. But... I have a hard time. I still have a hard time with that. Right. Letting people help me. Yeah. Well, when when the twins were born, we were brand new in the ward. I think we had only been there for a few weeks, so we went a couple of times, and and she was pregnant, and then we we were missing for several weeks because we were in the hospital. Right. And so the Relief Society president reached out, and the bishopric reached out, but I think nobody in the ward really knew who we were during that time, and so they kind of just seemed like we stopped coming to church for a while, but really we were just at the, at the hospital. And then, so the, for the people who didn't know us, which was almost everybody, we all of a sudden came back or showed up with, you know, two babies several months later. So it was uh, interesting. We were brand new in the ward and really didn't know anybody. I don't remember, I don't remember ever meeting you before you were called. Yeah. I don't remember you in the ward well, before And then that. because after that, we were just always in the hall because we had two kids right. that we were taking care of. Well, and not even that, but when you have a premature baby that will, that born are born in November, in November they're right. very, very, RSV. yes, they're very scared right. about RSV. So we didn't even take them out of the house. They, we were house locked for almost six months. We just right. stayed inside. They couldn't go anywhere. Even us, they told us we have to avoid going outside as much as we could because you don't know what you can bring right. back into the house. So, I mean, he would go to work occasionally i would you know he would get home and i would go to the store for grocery shopping but pretty much we were home bodies home bodies for six right. months so yeah people really didn't know us for until you got, until you got called kind yeah I, I don't remember ever meeting you guys until after he was called yeah thanks for paying attention yeah well <laughs> <laughs> when when was that what year was that 2009 yeah, that's uh, it was April 2009. When you got called or when you moved in? Called. So they were yeah. born in 06. Mm-hmm. So it was about two and a half. They were born in November of 06, the boys. Yeah, I was I was in Young Men's. I, I never even... I never saw, saw you in Elders' <laughs> Corner or anything. So, yeah. So anyway, fast forward. 
you're in the bishopric fast forward years down the road yeah fast forward to to october well fast forward to we have we had five kids right uh the twins were eight years old at the time the twin boys eight uh healthy um and then a, a daughter who came along and then two younger brothers who came along so we had five total our youngest was one and a half wasn't mm. quite two yet and uh our our older twin older by about a minute uh, his name was sam uh gave us a scare we were he started having some stomach issues and uh and we thought uh we would give him some some laxatives or some uh some stomach medicines and and that didn't seem to help and it kept going and so we went to the doctor uh, and his large intestine had folded in on itself which is uh, was explained to us as being called intussusception uh, I believe is what it was called yeah they described it as like a telescope they just telescoped inside of itself very painful yeah and so he had a procedure an outpatient procedure done to to get that right uh, it was very painful for you know frustrating for him as an eight-year-old kid and we didn't think much of it it was extreme he was it was extremely painful the yeah. the procedure to fix the intussusception was extremely painful and he was awake during it and he was screaming at the top of his lungs like mom mom I, i'm sorry I, i'm sorry whatever i did i'm so sorry make it stop make it stop he was just literally it was so painful for him and so did he have to be awake during it well, so in previous or in later um, doctor's appointments, they were livid. They could not believe that they didn't put him under for it. They were. They said that is a. It is regular. It's routine for them to put them under for that kind of procedure. They could not believe that he had been left awake during that procedure. It was extremely excruciatingly painful. So for they him. they didn't even numb him then. They didn't numb him. So what the the procedure is is they inject a tube inside of him and they pump air into his stomach and it stretches the intestine out hmm. and then it's it's pain i can't imagine being awake for it it's super wow. painful that'd be terrible yeah so but the point being we came back a couple days we came home and a couple days later he was throwing up he was just still having issues and we had to take him back and he was just terrified that he was going to have to do that procedure again that's kind of what we went into the hospital thinking that they were going to have to do so they said they were going to scope him to make to see if they could find out why this was happening before they perform the procedure again and so i was with him alone me and sam went in together and um before the doctor took him back, he said it could be one of two things. It's very unusual for this to happen in a child so old. Usually it happens with infants. So it's very unusual for this to continuously happen. So we're going to scope it. There's a chance that it might be a mass. And so we're going to go look for it and make sure that that's not the case. And so when he said that, I called Stephen and told him that I need him here with me just to, for whatever the results were going to be. Um, and so he met me at the hospital, and it was October 1st. And uh, they, what year is this? 2015. Okay. Um, and it was very much like something you would see from a movie. We were alone in the hospital. The procedure was taking way too long. We felt like there was something wrong. 
Um, it's just us two. We're starting to get nervous. Um, and the doctor comes in and sits down and says the words that you never want to hear, that your son has cancer. So it was, it was painful. It was, it was very surreal. It felt like I was, it was almost like an out-of-body experience where he's talking to me. As soon as he said the word cancer, I didn't hear anything else. It was just, my mind was just spinning. I couldn't hear anything else. Just very, very surreal. Did, did Sam know what was, did it register with him? Did he know? He was asleep. Yeah, he was asleep. yeah. He, he, he had, it was major surgery to... Okay. To cut him open and pull out this tumor that they found. So were you there when the doctor came in then? Uh-huh. Were you there by then? Uh-huh. So what what was your reaction? What was your... Obviously, you were drawn back by it, but mm-hmm. she's... Aaron said she, you know, that's the last thing she heard is cancer and then blinked out everything else. What was your response to what the doctor said? Uh, I immediately went into comfort mode for my wife. Uh, the doctor was was kind but he was very short with us kind of blunt just wanted right. to get the message across and not uh, spend too much time on it um, right so he kind of came in and told us that news and left so my wife and I you know we prayed uh, immediately and uh, and just uh, were there for each other so my first thought was to, to come from my wife who was uh, uh, having a very difficult time that was that was my first thought when the doctor had said that and then when you had time to well, reflect the, on it yourself. The, we we kind of didn't. It was late at night when the doctor told us that and said, uh, you know, your son has cancer, don't plan on going home. Which is interesting to hear because we're, we're at Phoenix Children's Hospital and uh, in the waiting room. And so we made a few phone calls to family members. We had a, a friend who actually, when I was home, I wasn't planning on going to the hospital because we thought it was just a routine right. thing. And we had a friend who came over and uh, before Aaron called me, actually, and, uh, and she said, uh, I'm here to watch your kids. You need to go to the hospital. And I said, uh, I kind of pushed her away and said, no, we don't. I appreciate it. That's very nice, but my kids are fine. Don't worry about it. And, and she got pretty, uh, a little pushy. <laughs> He's a good friend of ours. And she said, no, take my car and go to the hospital. I will stay here and watch your kids. And it was on the way to the hospital that Aaron called me and said, uh, they found a mass and we don't know what that means yet. And then we got to the, and then when I got there, a few minutes after I got there, the doctor, the surgeon came out and said that they had removed the tumor. Um, so that was... Our, uh, so we just planned on staying at the hospital. We stayed there all night, um, didn't sleep very well. We, we went to Sam's room, but he was out of it because of the surgery that right. he had just gone through. And so we had a few family members come and, and stay the night. Uh, we gave my me and my brother-in-law and my father-in-law, uh, gave my son a blessing there late at night and uh, just kind of stayed up quietly just pondering what what that was going to mean for our family over the next little bit. We didn't know. And at that point, we hadn't met with the oncologists. Uh, We knew that the the cancer that he had was very serious and fast moving because the tumor was quite large in his stomach. And so uh, we knew that that, he he said, you're probably going to have to start a chemotherapy treatment immediately. Did they say what stage it was? Or did they not know? It was stage three. 
stage three, we met. So that night, that, that night we didn't get a lot of information other than the pathologist and the surgeon together could verify that it was one of a few different types of cancer. So they could narrow it down that it was cancer for sure. It wasn't until a few days later that the biopsy came back and the oncology team came in and was able to verify that it was Burkitt's lymphoma, which is a type of cancer which is, causes tumors to grow in, in your stomach. And that was the type of cancer that, uh, that he was diagnosed with. And he was diagnosed with stage three at that time. So even after the removal of the tumor, it was necessary for him to uh, immediately start a chemotherapy program, which was going to last several months uh, and be very intensive and, uh, and painful for him uh, in order to make sure that all of the cancer cells were destroyed even though the, the tumor had been removed. He had to undergo chemotherapy after right. that. Wow. So at what point do you let him know that this is a, this is a thing? It was, I think we waited till the next day to tell him we let him wake up and feel a little bit better. Um, How did he take it? Well, we did, were, he, did he understand? or I'm not sure how much he understood. But we were pretty open and honest with him. We let him know that he was very, very sick. Um, you have something called cancer, and it is very dangerous. It's, um, it's going to make you really, really sick. And the medicine that they're going to give you to help you heal from this is also going to make you very, very sick. Um, you're going to be spending a lot of time in the hospital. Uh, I remember him saying that... Uh and it kind of hit him that he was very worried that he was going to die. And so here you are talking to your child, and, and we didn't know at that point, and the oncology team had they hadn't given us a kind of an odds of whether or not he was going to survive, but they were repeatedly told us that it was very serious what was going on, uh, and there was a chance that, uh, that he would not. And so we didn't tell him that, but he was very worried about um, asking him, am I going to die? And that, was, uh, that was a big worry for him, obviously. Um, a couple other things happened that we look back and kind of joke about. So our other four kids were at home. Our youngest was 18 months or one and a half, and it just so happened that that week he contracted chickenpox. Now, with Sam, our other son, being in the hospital, if anybody that is around somebody who has chickenpox obviously can't come to the oncology floor at the hospital where everybody's immune system is very weakened. Right. And so we had to create kind of a barrier between us and, uh, and, the, and the rest of our kids for a week or two until, was it seven days? Mm-hmm. He was, it was Spencer and Noah that got our, our two youngest, that they were not allowed, and anybody that had contact with them was not allowed to the <laughs> hospital room. And I remember thinking, when we heard that he had chicken pox, I kind of just threw up my hands and said, all right, what what else is coming? <laughs> Bring it on. What, what's next? Because, um, and then I had to come home one of those days, and so I took our youngest into the hospital, I remember, late at night to to verify chicken pox. It was just a, it was a mess. That that week was, um, was really difficult for the family. Had you already had chicken pox? I did, yeah. So you were able to come home and... Yeah, but... I, I can't remember all the, the specifics, but it was very precarious, and we had to clear things with nurses and doctors, and it was just so our 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 other children were not allowed to come and see their brother, 
right. for a few days because we had to wait for all of that to, to clear. clear up. Right. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I bet she felt terrible. Just like a bonus. Right. Here, here's Wait, a hard trail. See my brothers and some sprinkles. Yeah. It was it was like on <laughs> on the Emperor's New Groove where they were going over the cliff and uh, and David Spade just says bring it on. And I just that was what I remember thinking. So you get the news. Um, what he starts his chemo. What what goes on? Well, we spent about three and a half weeks in the hospital before he gets his chemo. They still have to do a lot of testing to figure out exactly what orders to write for his chemotherapy and what he needs, but they also want to monitor him and make sure that things aren't progressing really any further because of um, how rapid the tumor grows, how aggressive the type of cancer he had grows. So they just kept him in the hospital. So we stayed in the hospital for three weeks and then they sent us home saying you would get a call for when your first round of chemotherapy would start. So they sent us home and I kept getting calls from the oncologist at Phoenix Children's who was just extremely worried. Just, I know we sent you home, but I really feel like you need to go just start chemotherapy immediately. She was just extremely worried. So she sent us to a different oncologist at a different hospital was just like, we're, we can't wait any longer. You just go to Banner Children's and get started at the chemotherapy there because we can't wait any longer. So we were only home for about a day and then they sent us back to the hospital and how his chemotherapy worked was he would go to the hospital and he would stay in the hospital for a whole week and they would administer his chemotherapy for the whole week and then he would come home for two weeks and then go back for uh, for another week for his next round so he did that for four months where he did that Um, and i had this really interesting experience that i actually think about a lot Um, on the first day that he went into chemotherapy to have his first round. Um, I went into Target to go get a sweater. I knew we were going to be in the hospital for a really long time. I knew it was going to be really cold in the hospital. So I went to go purchase a sweater. Um, and I was standing in line and Target had a power outage. Uh, power outage. And the lady behind me was just getting really riled up, super annoyed, so mad that things were just taking too long, that she couldn't check out faster as fast as she needed to. So they finally get the registers back up, and she comes up to the register, and she shoves my purchases aside and puts her purchases in front of mine and says, I'm sorry, you know, I just need to, I just need to get through this line. This is outrageous and ridiculous. And I remember thinking, if she had just looked up, just, just look up at me, maybe she could have seen my face just that something horrible was going on in my life um and so i think about that a lot i think of that phrase just look up whenever somebody is you know cutting me off on the freeway or something horrible like that happens where somebody's pushing my stuff aside or just acting in a manner that it really makes me mad i think about that phrase a lot just look up Look at people's faces. Maybe you can see that something is going on in their life that is just that you have no idea. You just don't know. You don't know the burdens that people are carrying. And um, 
that very first day was, um, that was the message that I needed to learn, was to look up and see people. I can't believe that someone would actually do that. <laughs> on, on a normal day. Like, right. if, even if it wasn't the day where my son just happened to be starting his first round of chemotherapy, on a normal day, like, what a horrible thing to do to somebody. Right. Just irritating, but... Maybe she was having a bad day. Maybe I should have looked <laughs> up to her, huh? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe she was having a worse day, right? Yeah. Hard to imagine, right. but it's possible. Yeah. You're a lot better person than I am. <laughs> no, that's not true. Yeah. It's what? very true. Because <laughs> I think I would have pushed her stuff off. And said some choice words to her. <laughs> I'm, I'm just passive aggressive. It's not that I'm a good person. I'm afraid of confrontation. <clears throat> yeah. You're a better person than I am. <laughs> so, wow. That'd be, that'd be horrible. That would really upset me. Yeah. yeah. I'm upset hearing Yeah, that. yeah. I, I, I what mean, did she look like? Yeah. <laughs> Did you get did, her name? Did you get her license plate number? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you decide you not need, didn't need that sweater and go out and get right, it? Right, yeah. And let's not pretend like I was totally charitable. I mean, when I got in the car, I was still reeling, just like, I can't believe she did that. But just looking back on the experience has been right. very, very much eye-opening for me that that was a message I needed to learn, was look up, look, look for people right. that are suffering. So. Right. But it was an interesting several months we saw a lot of we saw the lord's hand in our life a lot we for me that was manifested in my relationship with my husband i don't think there was ever a time where i felt so close to my husband where I, we were just completely and perfectly connected we were just experiencing this horrible horrible thing and i was overwhelmed with just unconditional love and that is that got me through it was unconditional love from my husband and it filtered and became unconditional love from my heavenly father and that's that's what got me through for those hard hard months and they were hard how did you get through it steve um day by day What's day by day, by day, by day. Well, yeah, uh, step by step, we just had to, again, we immediately, uh, or I immediately felt that um, uh, asking why would not have been wise. Like, why is this happening to me? Why is it happening to us? Why is this happening to my family? Why is this happening to Sam? And we immediately felt that instead of asking why, we should uh, ask what should we do? Um, and how should we handle this? You know, what does the Lord want us to to do during this time? Um, we never really questioned to think that we were being punished. Never really questioned to think that we had done something wrong that just didn't really cross our minds. We just kind of figured that this was something that uh, that was that was going on. One of the the most difficult things, so as a as a father, to to understand about chemotherapy, and I didn't know anything about it before. Going through this experience, what chemotherapy is is a is several different drugs. It's poison. Basically. It's poison that they put inside your body to destroy cancer cells, that also destroy a lot of other things as well. And so, what chemo, what his chemotherapy 
treatment looked like was um, he had a list of different chemicals. He was a, he had a port that was uh, in, uh, surgically installed, inserted into his chest, that would allow him to be pricked with a with a needle, because um, he was going to be pricked multiple times every single day. If you do that in your arm or your veins there, then there's a lot of chances for infections. And so if you're going through chemo or other you know, long-term care, they put what's called a port in your chest. And so right. he had this big port, ex, you know, uh, protruding from his chest. And so we would sit there and watch the nurses put on all of their per, almost like radioactive gear. Their, you know, the big long gloves and uh, a mask covering their face. Are and, they like the rubber gloves? Yeah, rubber gloves, like, like thick, all the way up their arms, and then <laughs> the a, gloves, a big apron right? over yeah. their, you know, over their front, mm-hmm. and a, a face mask. And they would carefully grab this bright neon yellow almost glowing bag of chemotherapy medication and they would slowly walk through the room and they would put it on top of the where his uh you know where where his port was was connected to and then they would slowly inject that chemical into his body and it's very surreal to watch that and then they slowly back away and they go out and they take off their protective gear and then we're just left to watch that drain into his body and so that was uh very strange and very hard to deal with it's very normal for for chemotherapy it was difficult for us to watch he had a lot of ups and downs they were giving him in addition to his chemotherapy which was very painful very painful for him there were several several days where he would just uh, and nights i usually would after a while, after the first couple of weeks, I would go into work during the day and then come back right. at night and I would sleep there and then go to work the next day. And so I was there at night and he would just kind of uh, moan or cry all night. There was not enough. They were trying to give him pain medication, but uh, it was very difficult. So he just had aches and it was just his body was painful. In addition to that, they were giving him uh, steroids that caused his emotion levels to go up and down. So he became extremely emotional um, very quickly. And then it would, his, you know, his, his excitement oh, would, would go up and he would be happy and he would be, you know, for a few minutes he would think everything was fine and kind of forget what was going on and feel great. And then a couple of minutes later he would just be down in the depths and, uh, and sobbing. And not necessarily because of the pain, just because he, he was wild swings emotional, of emotions right. that... This eight-year-old boy had no idea what was going on. So some of the other, you know, really difficult times were uh, when he started to lose his hair. After the first chemotherapy treatment was over, it usually took a couple of weeks for his hair to fall out. And he did end up losing his hair. And I, the first couple of days that his hair started to fall out, he was very upset by that. Did not want to look weird. At what point did you have the head shave party? So we, we did that. So we ended up, his hair was falling out, and so we shaved his head. Uh, and then about a week after that, I think right before he went back in to his start his second treatment. Wasn't it like in December sometime? Uh-huh. It was right. It was a little bit before Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, yeah, somewhere around there. So we had a, we had a party, a head shaving party. Yeah. Ended up having 30 or 40 guys who came and shaved their heads. I we also had them. friends that, yeah, Lee came. Yeah, my um, kids. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we I had to. Uh, my daughter into doing it, though. <laughs> no, Erin didn't either. I didn't. So she I'm decided a horrible not mother. <laughs> um, I, 
We yeah. even had friends like video call in and send us videos heads, of them shaving their heads. Friends out of state, right. and he had a lot of support. I remember, I remember seeing those, some of those videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and that was great. That was great for Sam. That was all of his, you know, his brothers did, and he seemed happy uh, to see all that. Yeah, and that, that to night get was that great. support. He seemed really happy that night. Yeah, yeah. That that night was very, very good for him. Very, very good for our our whole family. Right. Um. So we we received a lot of support that way, but it was still kind of tough for him. So that night was good, but then still the next day he's right going into the hospital. Well, so he had this kind of wait. He's back into it, right? I mean, yeah. He's so, back in the back in the trenches alone. Yeah. Right. Not alone, but alone. Yeah. Well, and there were and so we were, I think we were at home on Christmas Day. We were in treatment on New Year's Eve. I remember it was me and Sam there hanging out uh, and we had four other kids and that's what made it difficult as well so Aaron and I were there at the hospital as often as we could be one of us was was almost always there virtually the entire time one of us two were there there were a few times where we had a grandma come and stay uh, or a grandpa and uh, but that was that was kind of rare and so we had four other kids who were still in school and four other kids who needed parents and who missed their brother this was very traumatic for them as well Especially for would, his little sister. Would they come visit quite often? The kids, yeah. The other kids, yeah. They they did when they yeah when they could, and uh, when they weren't sick and were able to come, yeah, they would come and spend a few hours there and uh, go to one of the playrooms on the oncology department. They we got to know the hospital very very well, and to know uh, every, where everything is and the floors and the cafeteria and all the restaurants around the <laughs> hospital. We got to know very very well. And all the movies that they have, got to, <laughs> got to watch those over Multiple and over. Times. Yep. But it was quite an experience for the siblings, too. They also had, it just everybody experiences this tragedy differently. Right. I think um, for Ellie, Ellie is our daughter, she um, is kind of prone to anxiety anyways. Lots of things make her very anxious. And so for her, her life had just completely fallen apart. And so she was very anxious a lot. I remember spending hours just trying to like walk her into school and get her to go to school for several days um, after everything had happened. And we were trying to, uh, the goal was to have the other kids live life like it's totally normal. You can come see Sam, but you're gonna keep going to school. You're gonna keep doing your after school stuff because we want you to just, you know, be normal, be normal, right. be normal. You, you don't want to be the family that brother has cancer. And that's the only thing that you think about. And that's how you dwell on right. your life. You, you need to keep moving forward. Right. Um, but it was really, really hard for her. Every little normal thing was very, very just wrenching for her. She just, she would shake and she would cry and she just, just couldn't get past it. But then once she did, she was okay. But like, taken her to school she would cry at her classroom for hours and but we also saw sweet little miracles in that way her teacher that she had had her mother pass away from cancer several a couple years before and she wrote Ellie this beautiful note about how she knows exactly what she's going through and she's going to be here for her this year and she was phenomenal that Ellie's teacher got her through that whole year she I know she needed to have that teacher this year or that year for her um, she was a big support for her. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ellie really needed that teacher. That was, uh, I still have that sweet note that she gave her. It's very tender to me. Um, and then Jack, I think, I think the, um, 
Yeah, how did it affect his twin? Like, yeah, it was that was a very very special relationship, special thing for them to go through. I think a lot of the times they went through it together. So the night that Sam started losing his hair, um, we asked Jack if he wanted to shave his head with Sam so that they could kind of, you know, like solidarity, right. brothers, we could do this together. Um, and it was a little bit hard for Jack. He, was, he wasn't just jump on the boat, let's go ahead and shave my head. He was really, really sad about it, but he did it. We, we didn't have to talk him into it or force him to do it, but there was tears and he was sad about it, but he wanted to do it for Sam. Um, so he shaved his head for Sam and then it just so happens that because Sam got diagnosed in October and his treatments were October, November, December, January, there's a lot of school breaks in between those months. And so Jack spent a lot of time at the hospital with Sam. And that I think was probably one of the best medicines for Sam. They would just bunk up together in the same bed and spend all day together, just playing video games, watching movies, listening to the Batman soundtrack, they were, I, Sam really needed Jack. And I think Jack really needed Sam. They needed each other to get through it. So it was a very, very important relationship for Sam to get through that, I think. Now, what, what could Sam actually do in the hospital? Like, what could you guys do together in the hospital? Would you guys, because you spent hours and hours and hours there. Would you, like, play cards? Would you play Candyland? What? what? <coughs> I'm sure it was different. He got bored very, very, very quickly yeah. in the hospital, and there were and and sometimes the chemo was it was tough enough that he wasn't he wasn't feeling good, so he would feel nauseous, so he would just lay in bed. So right, we would take a field trip down to the cafeteria, and that was a that was a big day for him, where he would carry down his uh, his uh, his Jarvis, you know, the, right. that's what he called his, you know, that was connected to his port. His IV his IV that he was connected to his port and uh, go down and kind of just walk around the hospital and that was about all the energy he had. And So he played a lot of video games, but then he would also just get kind of nauseous and not want to play video games. We did just whatever we could. Yeah. Most of the time it was just in the room though. It was did, hard to leave. Did they have video games in the room or do you have to bring your own in? Or no, they had, they had some there. It was, it's, it was Banner, Phoenix Children's did, but also Banner Desert. So it was the oncology, there's a whole floor that's basically oncology uh, for cancer patients, and the rooms are set up that way, so it's actually really nice. They do a lot to try to make things easier for the family and for the for the child. Uh, the beds aren't very comfortable. That's <laughs> uh, still a hospital. Um, you but, mean uh, for the for the parents? It's not. It was horrible yeah, yeah. for the parents, right. but you kind of just put up with it. But yeah, there's usually a bunch of different video games and and some pretty good movies. <laughs> but he did, again, he did not feel good most of the time. There was a lot of times where he would just have migraines all day and we would just close the blinds, shut up everything, and he would just sit in the dark because his head hurt so bad. Um, there was a lot of time just throwing up and just feeling really, really lousy. So we would play, but a lot of it was just almost pain management and, you know, trying to make him not miserable. So it's been rough on you guys too then. Stop. Sit there and yeah. Yeah. A lot of the nurses made it good yeah we had a couple run-ins with a couple of rough nurses that <laughs> had some bad experiences with but uh but for the most part the nurses kind of make the whole stay a lot better they try to make it better for you uh -huh. yeah 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 they do a great job there's a lot of nurses that we'll never forget that were up there that were just very very 
you know, I, I imagine as a nurse, you kind of see it all day, every day, and you kind of forget, but it seems like they didn't, that they remembered that, you know, these are real families going through these real horrible tragedies, and they were still just so kind and so patient and so just do what, bend over backwards to make sure that he's comfortable and he is happy, and they're talking to us and making sure emotionally we're comfortable and happy, and do we need anything, and how can I help you? So there was, and we had a lot of really, really good nurses. So you make it through, he gets through chemo, cancer's gone now, right? Mm-hmm. It's been, so we're coming up on three years from the date of his uh, diagnosis. It was about, what was it, May? About May, of so October to May, in May was his last treatment, and we had a end of treatment party and things like that for him. And uh, I didn't get invited to that. It was at the hospital on the oncology department. We had uh, <laughs> stormtroopers there and uh, Jedis and everything. So they usually, on the last day of a chemo treatment, it's on the oncology department, and they kind of throw a big party for you. His his immune system was still a little bit weak, so that's he wasn't why I didn't get invited. Quite yeah, it was ready. just family. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah just Sorry, Lee, you're well, not family. It yeah. was yeah, it was in the hospital <laughs> room, enough. hospital floor, so. They kind of once one of the children, and when one of the children ends their treatments to go home, right. they uh, they spend a lot of time throwing a big party for him. So do you get it? Like you said, I know he's like a Star Wars guy, right? Like Star Wars and stuff. That was yeah, there's nine troopers, nine years old by the yeah. <laughs> Force Awakens actually came out while he was in the hospital, and uh, that was very very difficult <laughs> for me to wait because <laughs> I didn't see it Until for a long time. time. Correct, until he was able to go, because he couldn't go and sit in a theater with a bunch of people who may or may not be sick. Right. And so that was, <laughs> it came out in December sometime in that mm-hmm. year, and it was, that was tough. That it was, was probably big, the hardest part of that cancer That was a big sacrifice. <laughs> that was your hard part. That was a tough sacrifice. <laughs> let that go and moved on. He was asking why at that point. Why? Why Boy. me? <laughs> So, how many years did you say? About three years. And three years. In two months, it'll be three years from the date that wow. he was diagnosed. So, what do they say? After five years, then? Because he has to get checked up every year or something right now? He still goes routinely to get checked up. About once a year, he gets a full body scan. And quarterly, they're still taking blood tests and things. But with this particular type of cancer... Once they got rid of it, they're not as worried about it coming back. Well, they said it just not necessarily not as worried about it coming back. They just said it's just so aggressive that the longer it goes from when he was first diagnosed is just better. Um, the less likely. The less likely because it would manifest itself so much faster. Is that what he just said? Yeah. yeah. Basically. <laughs> Sorry. That's a good restate, though. Yeah, let me correct you and restate what he said. <laughs> just, just better, more articulate. That was good. The the unconditional love is not here anymore. It's, can, uh, it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> I can feel that already. <clears throat> so, what are some of your some of your um, some of your takeaways from this experience? These experiences that that we've talked about today, tonight. There's a part of me that almost feels a little bit guilty. There's I know you you hear guilty. Of, yes, you hear of like survivors' guilt. Oh, I know all about that. Yes, this is a very, very real thing where there I had an experience. Um, 
it was probably two years after his end of treatment. Um, and he was healthy, you know, had full head of beautiful blonde hair. Um, you'd never know that he was sick. But we still regularly went into his clinic and got um, a checkup. And we were coming out of a clinic, out of the clinic one day, and we see a kid coming in. Um, he's on crutches, and he just, it is somebody that Sam knew that was um, up on the seventh floor with him. They, when they were both feeling good, they would play Nintendo together and stuff. Um, and as we passed, you could tell that he was just, just not doing good. It was two years later still just suffering his legs were all chewed up with scars and bandages um and i i just was so overwhelmed with just guilt that here's my beautiful happy young son totally healthy um i i couldn't even look the mom in the eye i i avoided her i went straight to my car and i sat in my car and just just bawled my eyes out for about a half hour just uncontrollable um just guilt but joy that my son is here but that our friend that had helped us through this is obviously doing worse um that that was hard for me i i felt a lot of um just just guilt what a Mom, sorry. What have I done to deserve my boy to get healthy? Um, it just, I don't know, just probably a little bit um, unreasonable. But still, just, just guilt. Hard to explain. I totally understand that survivor's guilt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, can, I can understand that totally. I don't understand it from you. <laughs> I understand it in my life, though. Yes. <laughs> but that's, yes. we all have a tendency to find, to for ask sure. why. Right. So why did this bad thing happen to me? Right. Or why did this good thing happen to me? And sometimes right. those things are outside of our control, and we try to find reasons why. Right. And so I think that's an example of that. For sure. I, I don't think we can, you know... I don't know. It's a tough situation, you know. I can totally see where you're coming from, you know. Wanting to, feeling that guilt. I'm not wanting, but feeling that guilt passing by that, that family, right? And feeling that guilt that man, why do I? Why am I so lucky? And right. They're not. Right. But it's guilt, but it's know. also like a heavy burden for everybody else that's suffering where you right. just still feel just so much pain for them. You just know there's so right. many people that are just carrying these huge burdens. It's guilt and it's sorrow for people who just have hard things happen. Yeah. So I got a question then about that then. So is part of your guilt thinking that maybe she's looking at you going, man, how did they get so lucky? How did they get so lucky? Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think I thought that, um, so much as I just was, you know, just almost ashamed that it, it right. was us, that we're the ones that got lucky and pulled out of this. Right. I, I don't think she would have ever thought that right. at all. Um, I, think I it, know that I for sure would have thought that. <laughs> How did he get so lucky? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Those no, dogs. No, 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 no. I w no, if I was you, that's what I would have oh, thought that they were thinking. That they were thinking. Yeah. No, I don't think she was thinking that. No, not if I was her. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> 
I would have just thought, man. You, you know, would have been happy for him. You know you would oh, have. Oh, I for sure yeah, would have. Yeah. Absolutely. For sure. What about you, Steve? Takeaways? Yeah. Well, you had asked earlier what, you know, what I did to get through it. Right. And first, and, and kind of like I shared my, my wife, we became very close uh, in a way that, that we weren't before. We were very good friends uh, and married, uh, had been married for nine to ten years, and very, very happy. Uh, but when you go through things like that together, you become close in a different way. Um, and also, um, in my life, I didn't always have a testimony of Jesus Christ. But at that time, I, I did. I served a mission and gained a, a very deep testimony of Jesus Christ and that the gospel of Jesus Christ blesses us. It doesn't always keep us from hardships. In fact, sometimes being a disciple or follower of Christ invites additional hardships, sometimes. But I had this, for, a, for many years before that, had learned through other you know, difficult trials uh, and difficult times in my life that I could turn to the Savior and have my burdens eased. There were many times quietly, late at night, in a hospital room where I sat with my son and was completely helpless and there was nothing that I could do to fix the situation and I turned to the Lord and felt comfort I know that I was helped by the Savior Jesus Christ I believe in him and I believe that he blessed my family and that blessing wasn't always in the form that I wanted an immediate healing and getting out of the hospital and going home. It didn't always happen the way that I wanted, but I felt strengthened through Christ. And that was how I got through it. And having come home and moved on, uh, that, that testimony of the Savior remains. I, I came to know him better, quiet times alone with my son. Uh, in a hospital room, I, I came to know the Savior better than I had previously, and that it was not a that was a, was a blessing of this experience that I, I came to know Him more fully and uh, and in a different way. And in my pain and agony, and in my uh, times where I felt like there was nothing that I could do, the Savior reached out and, and comforted me. And I and I have to have to share that because that is really what did get me through that time. I appreciate that. I appreciate you guys uh, being so open about uh, sharing these experiences. Um, I've talked to Steve about this, that, uh, you know, I, I, one of the reasons I do the podcast is really a, because uh, I get more out of it than anyone else does, I feel. So I, I really appreciate you guys uh, agreeing to do this, and uh, um, it I feel like I um, learned a lot tonight and uh, gained a lot more respect for you guys, and so I, I appreciate it. So thanks for letting us. It was yeah. an interesting experience. This is <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully it wasn't as bad as you thought it was going to be. No, it was fun. Hopefully that's the worst thing we've ever gone through, and it's only up from here. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Hey, we got through it. I, I 
totally know that feeling. So everything's uphill from there, right? It's got to so. be. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, letting me do this. Um, and uh, hope everyone enjoys the episode. Everyone tune in next week for next week's episode. Thanks. 